New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Shasta Henry. Shasta is a PhD candidate in entomology in the discipline of geography and spatial science at the University of Tasmania. She's here today to talk to us about her paper published in Zoatax on February 9th, wherein she and her co-authors describe a new species of cockroach from Tasmania. Welcome, Shasta. Hi there. It's great to have you on, and I'm really excited to talk about something that just absolutely people either cringe at or think, wow, those are amazing. Cockroaches. They, they, right? they love them or they hate them. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun to work on a, a specimen that is genuinely charismatic, but I've had to have the same conversation over and over again, telling people that it's a nice cockroach, not an ugly, nasty cockroach. It's not a German cockroach. This is not the cockroach that people find in their house throughout the world that, that everybody is all freaked out about. This is a nice outdoorsy one. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Like, how, how big is this thing? It's quite a large cockroach, although I say that, and of course, that's a very, um, globally, cockroaches cover quite a broad uh, spectrum of sizes, as all insects do. Uh, and where I live in Tasmania, if people have never heard of it before, it's a little island peninsula off the bottom end of Australia. So I live in quite a cool climate, no red deserts, no red kangaroos. Uh, so a lot of the insects in Tasmania... But you do have Tasmanian devils. We do have Tasmanian devils. That's a real thing. Um, <laughs> but you should Google it if you want to get a clear picture in your head. We do have exactly. Tasmanian devils. Uh, so it's quite a cool kind of New Zealandy um, place in the world. Uh, and so a lot of our insects are actually quite small and nondescript, which is why I was really excited to get handed this cockroach project because it is large. It's about... 2.5 centimeters wide by about four centimeters long. That's about one inch by one and a half inch. So kind of round, kind of tubby. Uh, and they're, and they're, and they, they look a little bit from the pictures in your paper. They look almost a little bit like what other people might know as a pill bug or a roly poly with just long antennae, right? They have those nice armor platings that kind of overlap going along the back and. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a wingless cockroach species, so they right. don't even have little stubs. So uh, trilobite is another word that gets used to describe them. They've got that kind of arched front uh, and the layered plates. Um, and so they look a bit like that kind of ancient fossil kind of being. Uh, and they're, they're beautiful. They're, they're metallic. They have got a sheen or like a patina kind of like a bronze statue. They look a bit like beaten metal on top, uh, and they're a bit shinier um, underneath. They're really they're really lovely. Yeah, the pictures of them are really interesting. And, and the first thing I thought when I saw it was, well, I guess if you're an entomologist, that does look like a cockroach. But I think if I were to show that picture to my wife, she would look at it and go, well, that doesn't really look much like a cockroach. In fact, my son, who's 17, saw it, and he said, is that some kind of weird roly-poly? And that's where I got the idea, like, oh, I guess it does kind of look like that. Yeah. Yeah. Without the wings, so, without the wings, they look quite different from that uh, sort of normal A insect picture 
fun, yeah, fundamentally, exactly. all insects have four wings, uh, but this is a flightless set of species. Um, yeah, so this sort of starts to undermine our assumptions about what insects look like. This is the genus Polyzosteria, right? And that's a, is that a genus that's endemic to the Australian area? Does it get outside of that area? I believe it's, there are some um, publications of Polyzosteria from China. So maybe that kind of Australasia. Okay, so Southeast Asia down in Australasia region. Yeah, okay. yeah. But there's another, there was 15 species of Polyzosteria that were already known from Australia. Uh, and this is the only one on the island of Tasmania. So it's an endemic species to boot. And not only is it endemic to there, so it's native to, to just the, the, and you say it's a small island. It's a pretty large island. Tasmania is not small. <laughs> right? And it's a pretty diverse island with a lot of topography. So you got a lot of up and down. You got some mountains there. And this comes into two pretty distinct populations, according to your paper, right? Based on what you said, it's two distinct populations, one at the alpine level, a smaller one, and then a, a broadly distributed coastal one. And they're separated by... Uh, according to your paper, 100 kilometers, which is about 62 miles, and, and about 1,000 meters of elevation. And just to give uh, the American listeners an idea of that, that's over half a mile difference in elevation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty bonkers. Um, it turned into a real, I felt like Dora the Explorer for a lot of this, a lot <laughs> of this project. It was just uncovering little pieces of information. It was like, like as taxonomy always is, but there wasn't so much a lot of just straight up discovery, but it was bringing what was already known about this species in, in fragments together and, and trying to put that puzzle together and, and fiddle and riddle out all of these clues. So yes, it's, it's originally known and, and largely known from hikers uh, and, and people who spot it in the central highlands, known from um, its, its type locality uh, around the Lake Yingina. Uh, and that's up on the sort of the flat central highlands plateau of Tasmania. Uh, but when I started digging through, A, a bunch of photographs online and uh, also the museum specimens, there's a bunch of, of uh, specimen records from around the whole north and then east coast of the island as well. And so the alpine population is kind of restricted to where the, the vegetation stays reasonably the same around these um, highland lakes. And that's where the majority of specimens are from. So about 70% alpine, 1,000 um, meters up, and then a much more dispersed but less specimens, about 30%, but from this really long coastal distribution, uh, which was just really doing my head in. We, we had the description ready to publish about a year ago, but I really wanted to solve this riddle. I felt self-conscious about just sending it out into the world saying, this completely incredible distribution, full stop. I, so I, yeah, right. I felt right. compelled to solve it. So we spent the time to do some extra DNA barcoding uh, CO1 proved that it wasn't any of the mainland species. CO1 and, you know, Tasmania's geographic isolation, these things can't fly. We've, we've been an island for about 10,000 years since the last glacial, sure. glacial cut us off again. Um, and so that all stacked up to it being, you know, like certifiably its own Tasmanian species. Uh, but then we had to do some more detailed mitochondrial D-loop control region, um, DNA barcoding, which should be more sensitive and would let us know 
it would give you an idea if you had like um, population structuring, like over drainage basins or over a hundred kilometer, thousand meter altitude distribution sure. between the coast and the um, alpine region. And that turned up with absolutely no difference. And so the ones on the coast were genetically identical population wise from the ones in the alpine center. And so then I had part of the answer. They're the same. But so just just so I don't mean to interrupt you right yeah. here, I just want to make sure we clarify because you got some technical terms in there yeah. and, and not everybody here is necessarily going to have that. Uh, we talked about this on the last episode with uh, Mike Sharkey about what a, um, a DNA barcode is. So that's basically a segment of a particular gene. It happens to be found in mitochondria for anybody out there might, might know what that is out there, but it, it's a particular gene that gets used mostly for animals that we use kind of like the barcode on, on something like a product you buy at the store. Uh, we expect it to have not a whole lot of variation within a species, but between species, we would hope to see variation. And we use that in the same way. So that if I buy my bottle of Coca-Cola or water or whatever, it scans that. And if I try to get a different type of thing, it has a different barcode for it. But then you also brought up this thing called the D-loop, right? So what can tell us a little bit about what the D-loop of the mitochondria is. You're, 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 I, I'm using heavy air quotes here, but your naive listeners might be pleased to know that, no, I can't tell you more about that. I got, um, <laughs> I, I got some geneticists. Uh, that's why it's, this, publish, this publication is, is co-authored, uh, because that isn't my specialty. I'm a, I'm a geographer and a, um, an invertebrate ecologist. I study how these insects as a puzzle piece fit into the environment. And so I just hired some specialists. You know, like I, I, I collaborated with some specialists to do that specialist work. So I had to learn that so, phrase, control region. The control region is, is kind of refers to what that yeah, it, I, gene does. So what's really funny about this is when you when you said you have no idea, I was taking a break thinking, she's going to explain this for a minute. And since this is an audio cast, nobody could see that I was taking a drink and nearly spit my water everywhere. <laughs> so I was laughing. I'm going to handle that straight back to you. Um, <laughs> Um, so the D-loop, it's just a highly variable region, and what you would hope to do from that is, and, and it's part of, again, part of the mitochondrial genome. Not everybody knows there's DNA in more than one place in a cell. It's not just the nucleus. You cool. can also find it mitochondria. Yeah. And it just happens to be a variable enough region that you can't actually pull apart that structure because populations that breed a lot together are going to be fairly similar. And if there's, there's any sort of separation of breeding, it's going to pull it out more. That's the easiest way to say it. So it would be yeah. kind of like saying that people who live in small towns and rural areas probably are more likely to be related than people who live in, than to people who are several towns away that's also a small town and in a rural area. So proximity is how that pulls that out. Yeah, absolutely. So so the, the, the first DNA barcode that we used was quite broad and was able to tell us that our species was different from the ones across an ocean on the larger island, it had been separated to 10,000 years. And then we needed a more uh, detailed barcode from a more sensitive region to tell us if our coastal population was different uh, from our alpine population. And then, confusingly, it told us that they weren't. It told us that they were genetically identical on that finer uh, scale. So I had part of the answer I was looking for. I could have then published it and just said, and they are the same population, but I felt a bit stupid just doing that too. So uh, we, we invested the time to kind of let the cogwheels turn over and came to the conclusion. Again, I'm a biogeographer uh, and, and work in the geography department. So with some collaboration and some thinking, we figured these species live for quite a long time. 
Polysosteria yingina, which is my pretty bronze cockroach, uh, live for about three years and so gives them ample opportunity to get swept downstream, perhaps, from the alpine lakes that they live around, uh, downstream to the north coast where their first uh, coastal, pop, you know, their first coastal specimens have been located. And then they get carried by ocean currents across the north coast, down the east coast. Uh, and so it fits the the evidence fits we, we it may or may not be true it's not yet proven by anything other than like i said the dna and where we have found them uh maybe when i graduate i'll go on a long and arduous camping kayaking trip and uh and spend a whole summer seeing if i can find one on one of those rivers joining the, i'm trying the to docks. picture you going down a thousand feet of river <laughs> down the side of a mountain in a kayak staring with a camera <laughs> at a cockroach on a raft like some sort of leaf or something that it's stuck to going, oh, God, why isn't she helping me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those heartless uh, documentarians. I actually, exactly, yeah. I actually used to be a whitewater raft guide before I came to university. Oh, well, there you go. So you get, you get the skill set already. Now, what, what do we know about these things ecologically? Most people, when they think of cockroaches, they, they literally do, as we, as we alluded to at the very beginning, they think about places that may not be very clean, that are largely indoor, that sort of thing. So it, it always amazes people when I tell them, well, that, there's really only one or two species that you have to worry about in the indoor parts of, of most places in the world. What are these things doing in the outside world? What are, do we have any idea what their ecological role is? Yeah. In any way? Yeah. So there's some, um, some other Tasmanian scientists who were studying their natural history for about seven years before I picked up this project. That was another one of the weird puzzle pieces that it had avoided being named so many times along this journey. So these other people, there are other publications about uh, what they discovered about its natural history. That's how we know they can live for uh, up to three years. They've been photographed a lot of times. They forage during the day. Uh, and so they're quite apparent in the landscape where they do live uh, and they, they bask in the sunshine, they often climb up vegetation. So they have been pictured feeding on either the pollen and or the nectar of a lot of Tasmanian uh, sort of alpine flowering heath, quite low spiky uh, vegetation in um, alpine Tasmania. And probably much like most cockroaches, they're, they're kind of largely omnivorous why they can be pests of people's houses. They're willing to eat your cat food or the rissole that fell under the fridge um, and your trash, as well as when they're outside, in the outside environment, they're probably doing largely useful, positive, clean, nice things like uh, breaking down leaf litter or breaking down uh, carcasses, other dead insects, dead animals, and uh, helping part of that healthy soil creation system. They do have purpose in this world for people out there who cringe at the thought of a cockroach. They really are actually very useful creatures and these are pretty good size. So you and if they live that long, you gotta think that they do have an impact. You you mentioned at some point in your paper that they were easy to find by the hundreds, I believe you even say, not long after a fire had swept through an area. So it's not like these things are terribly uncommon in the place where you find them. I and mean, it may not be found all over Tasmania, but at least in the main place where you found them, once the vegetation got peeled back, it became obvious that, that this was actually a fairly common thing there, correct? Yeah, yeah. That was um, a, a museum um, trip into the, into the highlands to collect and catalogue um, 
all, all specimens and they found, yeah, like they, they told me hundreds just sitting around on the rocks where they would probably be usually under cover of vegetation. Uh, but after um, climate change in Tasmania starting to get changing fire regimes and uh, bits of vegetation that would normally be too soggy to burn after snow and lots of highland rain, that's, that's starting to change up. So they are abundant uh, in their environment and obviously those hundreds had survived that fire uh, but they're not you know that that same phenomena uh, does show us that they are vulnerable to uh, these kinds of um, climate change and niche changes and, and habitat sort of dynamicy. How did you decide that this was a new species? We, we talked a little bit about you used CO1 barcodes and then you used the D-loop to help kind of confirm that it, the two populations were one species. Why did it take as you put in the paper, 78 years for it to be described as a new species. 79 years now, because it took two years for me to finally finish the publication by the time it all it all got put out. That's not an uncommon amount of time. I looked quite a lot into the taxonomic impediment uh, during my undergrad uh, because systematics uh, really interests me. It's, it's, it's normal for things to sit on the shelf for quite a long time. Uh, often, kind of as you might have picked up from what I was saying, taxonomists might be a bit uh, diligent and uh, over-invested sometimes in their projects and, and really want to tease out every part of this uh, puzzle that's in front of them. So shelf life, on average, can be about 21 years for a specimen from being brought in from the field to being finally have the paper published and, and put out. And it took me two years from starting this reasonably simple project, just identifying one known unnamed specimen. But this, as, as, as like part of the, part of the, the door of the explorer experience, uh, yeah, the first Tasmanian specimen was labeled from 1941. It was a female and, and I'm not certain if this is sort of scientific accuracy or scientific patriarchy, but mostly uh, females won't be allocated as type specimens. Uh, it, it, you, you wait until you find a male, but still first male specimen in Tasmania turned up in 1970, 1970 something. Read my paper to find out more. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll have a link to that paper in the show notes, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, there was just, you know, there was books published about Australian cockroaches and there was, you know, a massive revision in 1965. And it just kept, like, avoiding getting named. It got misascribed at one point in time. And so I guess you say, how did we conclude that it was a new species? And the DNA was definitely kind of the undeniable sort of unequivocal part, but we'd, we'd had the story pretty much together, like I said, from uh, the geographic distribution. They they can't fly, they're not likely to be swimming across the Bass Strait, so there's 10,000 years of interbreeding isolation between the Tasmanian population and the nearest mainland Australia. And the Bass Strait is what separates Tasmania from mainland Australia, right? Yeah, little little strip of water. Um, it's called the Bassian yeah. Plain when uh, we're in a glacial and it uh, it drains and you can walk across it. It's how indigenous people... Right, so as we get... It, when we're in a glacier period for people, I was that's I was actually going to go there next, and not to interrupt you again. Yeah, cool. Yeah, when we have a glacier that locks up water and that actually lowers sea level, and that's how we're able to walk across. 
again, for North Americans, that's that's also kind of the loop that we would get going from Alaska over to Russia following the Aleutian Islands there is the same principle that you were talking about right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same way that um, Indigenous Australians made it to Tasmania about 40,000 years ago. So that land bridge is, is very relevant to uh, the lots of scientific uh, studies in Tasmania. It, it eluded being named for 78 years. You used some morphological data in addition to genetic data to decide that it was a new one. How did you end up picking the name Yingina? So the, Tell me a little bit about that. That's an indigenous name, correct? That is an indigenous name. It's an indigenous word. So the very short version of this answer uh, is that I took the opportunity to reach out to the Palawa Kani language program. Um, that and the Palawa Kani are the Aboriginals of Tasmania, correct? Yeah, Palawa okay. is a reasonably new term for the identity of Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Uh, Palawa Kani is the reasonably new term that they've used. I think it means Palawa speaks. So it's the, the language of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people. And even though they've existed in Tasmania for 40,000 years, after colonization, um, the, the disruption, the eradication of, um, of people, of language, of land and tradition was pretty thorough. Uh, it was very aggressive colonization of Tasmania, uh, and that indigenous, the, the, the breakdown that we catalyzed for the indigenous Tasmanians was pretty thorough. And so it's not until recently that they have started to take the, uh, the fragments or the elements of their recorded language and have started moving forwards, like dynamically creating uh, new language from that patchwork and from the consensus of the Tasmanian indigenous population uh, currently uh, on the island. So the Palo Arcani language program has only been around for a few years. So it was all kind of new. So I thankfully had lots of good sort of modeling behavior. The the geography department that I study in has had a indigenous person helping to indigenize uh, the curriculum for the last few years. And finally, thankfully, it all kind of came together in my brain. It, it was the, the evidence that, you know, like, what did we say? This is like 87, 79 years. Other people had known about it for that whole time. Part of what I used to help describe and identify the species was all of these photos of all these hikers who had seen it years and years and years before I'd ever got sure. given the project. And so thankfully, I had that really powerful disconnect that it isn't mine, you know, that it wasn't mine to name in isolation and to just to choose whatever I wanted for it. And then I think because we got deep into the biogeography of it and, you know, when did it come here in the land bridge? And I, and I, you know, I'd learned about the indigenous use of the land bridge to occupy uh, Tasmania. And so then finally it all clicked into place that such a large, obvious specimen moving around during the daytime uh, up in the Alpine, the indigenous population of Tasmania would have had an identifier for this species once upon a time. Uh, and so I, I tried to use this privileged platform that I had of being in a position to name a species uh, and, and and pull other people up onto that platform with me to uh, give it a name in a language even older than Latin uh, and to give it a Palo Akani name. So it's named after a lake uh, on the 
eastern side of its type locality up in the mountains, and that is Yingina. So it's got a location name, as lots of other species do. That's really cool. So that making sure that you're giving the nod to the people who probably saw it long before a scientist ever cared about it and had it in their environment as just a natural part of their world. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that, actually. That's that's novel and nice. I, I feel all I feel proud, time. feel proud, but I feel pleased. Like I said, it was it was a bunch of um, work being done by other people that allowed me to get to that mental place. Um, I think I heard somebody say in Australia, it's becoming common to do either a welcome to country before festivals and before conferences and before meetings and things. If you have an Indigenous person who is able to do a, an official welcome to country um, by the Indigenous population to the gathering people uh, or an acknowledgement of country. So, for instance, as a white person, as a white Tasmanian, I might say I acknowledge that I am speaking to you today uh, from the land of the Palawa people in Lutruwita, Tasmania. And so I am acknowledging that the sovereignty of this land where I live wasn't ever, yeah, ever exactly. ceded. And so all of that stuff started to coalesce and give me that, um, I was able to have that comprehension, but thanks to the work of other people going on around me. Why is it important that people would want to know about these? It's, it's great that we have this enormous cockroach running around Tasmania in the Highlands area and apparently along a coastal area. What, why should people know about these? Is there anything we can learn from these that we might be able to apply outside of just our basic knowledge of biodiversity? There's a few, there's a few general principles that I could refer to here. There's, there's a type of sort of ecological work, which is called bioprospecting, which is where you, you, you run a bunch of plants through a sort of a, you know, spectrometer you know you run a you run a pant through a, a coffee machine you extract all of its volatiles and you see if any of those are economically medicinally useful for instance um, one of just some random periwinkle plant from madagascar has a active ingredient in it which has now been used to manufacture a leukemia medication I believe. And that's just one plant of hundreds of thousands and many, many more that we still know nothing about. Insects have that same kind of even greater uh, diversity. And so potential, the, the, the kind of capitalistic potential that is locked in any of those unknown species is really great. Well, yeah, because you, you talk about in the paper, these organisms have a defense mechanism, right? If you go to, to hassle them, they let you know about it in a specific way. What is that specific yeah, way? Yeah, um, it's, I mean, you could picture a skunk, I, I reckon. Uh, and so they will, they will rear up their abdomen and they'll flare out their um, abdominal, um, their terminalia, their, their end plates, and quite brightly orange. The butt, butt side. side. Yeah, point their butts at you and, uh, and they flange out their, their terminalia and they're quite orange inside. Step one, look scary, and then they will spray um, an unpleasant, not dangerous, but an unpleasant smelling spray onto you. There's one of the records. Thankfully, it's so fun going through museum records, but there's a handwritten note of one of the specimens that was collected in a house on the coast uh, that this cockroach had chased a dog backwards through the house um, to spray its, def its defensive <laughs> liquid. <laughs> Um, I'm picturing a terrified Boston <laughs> Terrier, like, I don't back down from anything except for that. I changed my mind. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and so and so when you were talking about bioprospecting, that's what that's what made me think of this is these things actually have a defensive chemical for lack of a better way to put it that they could use. It may not necessarily be harmful to humans, but there might be something there that most people don't understand that we find in a lot of different species, these sorts of defensive chemicals where you pick up certain things, they might emit an odor, they might leak on you, that could be urine, could be other things. In this case, we actually have an emittance from it, right? And who knows what that thing is made of? Maybe there is something there for the bioprospectors to find, or maybe something else that we don't even think is that Yeah, obvious. absolutely. So I, I like to be able to tell people about those kinds of like really overt, like financial, humanitarian, you know, medicines extracted from nature, which again, you know, indigenous people have known about those kinds of things. Food also, insects uh, pollinate one in three bites of our food. Uh, if, if you like... And they can be yes, the food. Can be the food if you. <laughs> I'm not sure people eat the cockroaches, but you never know. They're big. <laughs> Maybe that noxious liquid is actually like a super tasty self-sourcing cockroach. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one one of six legs too far. Um, but but like another thing, thankfully that um, just the nature of my geography department uh, that I, I came up through with my undergrad, and so it's it's I've kind of had these messages instilled in me. I love the fact that we have uh, human geographers and biogeographers and that we kind of knit the world together. And unlike perhaps like a zoology department that might be just animal centric or a, um, a human studies that's just looking at like that bioprospecting, my geography department have kind of knitted all the animals, the humans and the uh, the, the six legged, for instance, together in that geography and in that the, the ecosphere. And so these animals also just have intrinsic value. I don't want them to have to be seen as their economic potential. And of course, they're, they're helping break down uh, the leaves and the, the carcasses and things in their environment to help create soil, which grows those plants, which creates that oxygen that we're so into. Uh, but they can also and should also just be have all of the value of the fact that they exist uh, and, that they, and that they don't have to have any other clearer right to life than the, the fact sure. that they exist and that that is weird and awesome and that if we can keep a hold of as much of that biodiversity as humanly possible and it is a bit of it's a pretty human task because uh, it's destruction is largely a human task also um yeah that I, I just i never want to overlook that that concept of intrinsic value they exist and they deserve to just exist. It's an interesting conversation to have with people when you when they say, oh, I just wish these things never, you know, the world would be better without these altogether. That's not entirely true. Everything does have its place. Some things are more impactful than others. That's true. But it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be missed by something somewhere. For all we know, these are an important pollinator, as you were yeah. mentioning earlier, for some plant that we're not even really aware of, but we wouldn't be aware of, or at least we wouldn't be aware of until it disappeared and then suddenly, we're what's wrong with this plant? And it's all because somebody has some sort of bias against cockroaches or bees or whatever it may be, spiders, which is what I work on, whatever it may be, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that this has just been a known unnamed species, and the name isn't the important part, but it does generally mean that a folder has been created, a label has been put on the folder, and other information about what it does do in the environment and what value it does have intrinsic or or otherwise starts to go into that folder and so that's why the name as a placekeeper of that knowledge is kind of relevant and the, the fact that it just 
it was a large prominent specimen unnamed for for 79 years is a placekeeper also of our grand ignorance of massive um, percentage of the biodiversity globally and then some of it has obviously been expendable because we've done away with an amount of it and it hasn't collapsed yet but what is going to be the straw you know what is going to be the last card in the card castle before we eliminate something that just really messes stuff up that we really liked the way it was before and you know are disappointed and it'll undoubtedly be something that we didn't even think would be doing that that's undoubtedly how that's going to happen we're going to think oh it's because we got rid of this or that no it'll it'll be something small innocuous and then we'll realize Maybe we should have paid more attention yeah, to that. There is a, I don't know why this just suddenly made me think of, you know, one of the craziest uh, insects I've ever heard of. But uh, there was a there's a fur seal that went extinct and uh, there was a nasal mite that lived only in the nasal passages of that seal. And so that entire population collapsed along with that other species. And so that's you've got an extinction cascade there. But yes, the the something seal nasal mite entirely dependent just on that that one other building block and then you've lost you know the cascade ripples out from there well shasta it's been a real pleasure having you on talking about these polyzosteria yingina polyzosteria yingina yingina sorry yingina. okay i will get the name correct yingina <laughs> well thankfully uh, you can uh, you can go online to the tack inc website and actually listen to indigenous tasmanians pronouncing uh the word I will try to put a, a link to that in the show notes as well so that people can latch onto that and find out more. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. And your time is great. And I'm happy that we were able to coordinate this from opposite sides of the planet. Very opposite sides of the planet. It's about 25 degrees outside and sunny today. And I'm at negative 25 degrees and sunny today. So we literally have a 50 degree centigrade change in temperature. That's about 90 degrees for people who are paying attention in the U.S. 90 degree difference between us. So thank you again for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Once again, Shasta Henry's paper is in the February 9th issue of Zoataxa. And the title of the paper is Polyzosteria cockroaches in Tasmania represent a new endemic species with allopatric alpine and coastal subpopulations. See the episode details for a link to her paper. To learn more about Shasta, find her on Instagram and Twitter, both of which are at H-Y-B-O-P-T-E-R-A-S-H-A-S-T-A. That's at Hyboterra Shasta. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.